Hi there, my name is Adam Waters, and I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Bible Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. I'm just so glad that you made the decision to take us along with you this week on life's journey. Here at Grace Bible Church, we are a family of faith who seeks forgiveness, healing, and hope in Jesus Christ. Now, we might all come from different backgrounds, but each of us recognize that the tremendous needs in our lives point us to one place, to God, for His answers, His provision, and mostly for His grace. I hope the following program gives you a new perspective on who God is, who you are, and how you too might find forgiveness, healing, and hope in our Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Adam, for that awesome reminder that I'm constantly being evaluated. Um, I really do pray that all of you grade on a curve, and that curve is quite wide. Um, no, it's really grateful. I'm really grateful to be here. I'm really grateful to have another Sunday again with our church family. And uh, today we're going to talk about the blessing of a broken spirit, what it means to be broken, how do we get to a place of biblical brokenness, because we can spend a lot of time groveling in what we think is brokenness, but never moving towards the thing that God is calling us, the place that God is calling us. An author has written on this, one of my favorite authors. uh, He's with the Lord now. He's a famous pastor. His name is A.W. Tozer. Um, In one of his writings, he talks about the necessity of a Christian to walk with a limp. He preempts that by saying he thinks it's impossible for God to do anything with the person. That's pretty strong language, anything, unless he wound him deeply first. When you think about the things of your life, the events of your story, you think about what is God potentially doing through them to work brokenness in you. Tozer goes on to say, be suspicious of any pastor or any Christian leader who doesn't walk with a limp. Part of our brokenness, part of what it means to be broken is to recognize who we are before God, to come before him in humility and know that we are not all sufficient. See, God loves a broken spirit because it shows I can't, but you can. A broken spirit says that I am insufficient, but you are. Elsewhere in the scripture, it's called a contrite and lowly heart. Jesus said, blessed are the meek. See, we're taught here in this place, in this community, in this country, part of our Western values is that we must be self-sufficient. We must pick ourselves up by our bootstraps. No one's going to come and save you. You need to strike out on your own and get what you want. In God's eyes, self-sufficiency is the enemy of true blessing because it refuses to recognize one's own neediness. It prevents us from seeing God's blessing in our lives and opening our lives to that blessing. Because if we're full of ourselves, we can't be full of him. But a truly broken spirit is open to receive the blessings of God. Today we're going to be in two passages, not just one. We're going to start in Luke 7. So if you have your Bible, open it up to Luke 7, verses 36 through 50. We're going to talk about this passage for a minute, and then we're going to relate this passage to a passage in the Old Testament and see what putting them together can tell us about what it means to be broken and what it means to be looking to God for your sufficiency. So as we read 
I want you to read the text, but I, I, I don't stop at considering just the context, the content, and the characters. I want you to be asking yourself as you're reading, who am I in this story? Where am I most like each character? When am I most like each character? And what does this account tell us about who God is? So the first thing we're going to glean from this is a broken spirit acknowledges its own desperation. Verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. The story begins, and Jesus is in the house of a Pharisee. Later, we learn that the name of this Pharisee is Simon. This is not an uncommon thing. The the leaders of the uh, Jewish religious authority would invite Jesus into his home. It's not the only time he's actually had a meal with a Pharisee. So he's sitting at a table. We call it reclining. In the ancient Near East, what they would do is they would literally recline a table. They would lay down on their ground on a specific side. They'd eat with one hand, and they would surround the food and eaten this communal sort of reclining. This woman comes in, barges in, could be a better word, and all the scripture says is that she was a sinner. This is an important point, that all it says is that she was a sinner, because what we can do is we can read and fill in a specific act in that place. She was an adulterer. She was a drug user. She was fill in the blank on whoever it is we choose to rail at that day in a way to make a distinction between us and other people. All the scripture says is that she was a sinner. When we look at her, we realize a few things that she was not. First of all, she was not religious. By all accounts, she was a woman of the street. I don't know what that means. She was a woman who was not clean. She was a woman who was not righteous nor worthy nor was she socially acceptable. She did not possess, if you notice, any of the attributes of what we call the good religious Christian person. I don't know how many times I hear that. And I understand what they're saying, but that was a, they're a good Christian. They're a good Christian. What does that mean? Does that mean they dress a certain way? Does that mean they speak a certain language? Does that mean the categories of thought that they use always come out in a certain way? Do they see the world in the way that we think it should be seen? And then we label them a good Christian. Scripture is overwhelmingly clear that a good Christian is one who realizes that Christ is the only way and places their trust in Christ is the only source of their sufficiency. When we talk about ways to change our behavior, it's not try harder, it's trust harder. As we trust Christ more, as we get a vision, as we shall see of who God is and his holiness, it issues in behavior that's changed. She had none of the marks of the good, righteous, religious person. What was she? She was broken. She was clearly at the end of herself. She chooses to come into the house of this Pharisee. One she knew would reject her based on her status as a sinner, one who is unclean, one who was from the street, one that the Pharisee would be called to remain distant from. 
Her life itself was a testimony to her sin and her own separation from God. She was broken. Yet she was also repentant. It's possible in this world to live our Christian life with a sense of brokenness, but not repentance. It's to recognize that there are issues in our life and chalk it up to, well, that's just the way I am. As we continue to struggle, Jesus holds out the promise of a new hope. As we continue to make decisions that work against us, Jesus continues to promise a new thing, a new life, a new perspective if we only trust him. She was humble and her posture of tears. You know, when you come in and, I mean, you can read it without understanding it like this, that she's crying, washing his feet, but the feet at this time were the most ceremonially unclean portion of a person. She comes in and goes straight to the place of a slave to wash his feet with her tears. She's certainly audacious, though. She did not allow social convention to dictate her approach. She was compelled to come to the one, the only one, that could fix her. She didn't allow reservations to hold her back. The great cost of the ointment that she brought, nor the ridicule that she would face, almost assuredly, in the house of this Pharisee. Or frankly, even the danger that she placed herself in, in a society of such patriarchy, barging into a religious man's home, letting her hair, her glory, the thing that was to be covered out so she could wash the feet of this man. Pure vulnerability. She is clearly, she is at the end of herself. She is totally desperate. Can you see it? what it says in verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who touches him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. By Simon's inner dialogue, it's evident that he does not sense his own neediness in desperation. It's obvious that Simon knows that he, or thinks at least, that he is okay and not like that sinful woman. But a truly desperate spirit recognizes desperation in others, and it draws them to compassion. When we look at those in their world who are struggling and needy, do we feel our own neediness? When we're railing against someone's behavior or the way they should be living or should not be living, as we're saying it, is it ringing in our hearts? Watch out, because that's you too. No, we often place a distance between ourselves and others, which prevents us from feeling our own desperation. Only a desperate spirit can truly grasp the essence of the gospel and the nature of God. You see, the gospel says that we are incapable of doing anything to earn our salvation, either at the point of salvation or our sanctification throughout. The point that we are saved or anything that we achieve in the process, or anything I should say better is achieved in us in the process of our salvation. 
The gospel proclaims that God goes infinitely out of his way to save the objects of his affection, us. The gospel proclaims that we are saved by the mercy and grace of God. The gospel proclaims that entry into that salvation is humble repentance and trusting acceptance of what has been done for the sinner. None of this sounds like what Simon thinks the gospel is about or what it means to follow God. There is no doubt that if we truly recognize the precariousness of our position before God in our sin and truly understood the utter bankruptcy of our spiritual nature and ability to save ourselves, we would demonstrate a desperation that would open the gates of heaven with blessing and power. Again, we're so full of our own sufficiency, we're so full of ourselves that there's no place for God to work. It's when we empty ourselves of our self-sufficiency. It's when we empty ourselves of our own abilities, our talents, our power, our wisdom, our ability to navigate life. It's then that God comes in. If you recall, the Apostle Paul had some thorn in the flesh. Don't know what it was. All we know is that it annoyed him and distracted him from doing, so he thought, the service for the Lord working for the Lord, walking with the Lord. It constantly nagged him. Remember, the bitter and every sweet. That was Paul's. He said he prayed three times, Lord, remove it. God said no. Jesus said no because my grace is sufficient for me and in your weakness is my power displayed. It's the great paradigm of the Christian faith that when we recognize our inability and we look to Christ, God comes in and changes things. God empowers us where we lacked power. I know from my own testimony that there are times, I know for sure there's no way that I could have quit drugs on my own. Positive. Positive. I could stop, but not stay stopped. How do you stay stopped? It was only when God opened my eyes to my own insufficiency and opened my eyes to his infinite sufficiency that God changed my heart and is changing my heart. I don't know what it is that you're struggling with. I don't know what your circumstances are right now. But I'm virtually certain that in some way you're striving in your own power to achieve something instead of admitting the true state of your desperation, giving everything to Christ and saying, I can't do it, Lord, you can. And watching what God does. Simon's lack of brokenness is revealed in his detachment from the heart of God. Scripture says that often these people honored me with their lips, but their hearts were far from me. Simon had all the trappings of the good Jew, Yet his heart was far from God. He misunderstood the nature of God and the faith that God demands. He misunderstood the character of God and would prefer ritual purity over true purity, contrition, repentance. He misunderstood what it means to be righteous, that righteousness is something that comes entirely from without, is given to us by God, because in and of ourselves, we have nothing. 
Simon misunderstood the humility that God requires of his children. We see Simon with some false humility. Yes, teacher. But it was clear that his heart wasn't there. So Jesus tells a story. I can relate to this. There are times when my beloved son and I, I talk about Calvin a lot. Are in a discussion, say it like that. And I'll say, Calvin, let me tell you a story. And his eyes roll in his head like I used to do to my own father. Let me tell you a story. Can you imagine what Simon must have been thinking? Simon, let me tell you a story. Verse 41. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said, that is Jesus, said to Simon, you have judged rightly. Jesus uses his parable to showcase the differences between Simon and the sinner, between the Pharisee and the woman. You see, parables, as we read these, and as Jesus used again and again, have a certain purpose, and as we look at them, we have to be careful. They carry lessons. They're to highlight usually one particular teaching or thought about who God is or about some spiritual lesson that Jesus is trying to, sell, or to, to tell. So we have to be cautious about one-to-one correlation or one-to-one correspondence between everything we read in the parable and everything and how we understand it. But we can see what Jesus is driving at. Jesus is saying, here's this woman, here's this Pharisee. Jesus is saying both Simon and the woman were debtors. It's part of Simon's problem. He doesn't recognize that he is a debtor before God. He thinks he's done everything correct and he's seeking his righteousness through everything external. What he says, what he wears, how he lives, what he eats, what he doesn't eat, how often he goes to church, how often he prays, when he reads his Bible, all of that. They were both debtors. Both could not pay. Certainly Simon did not think that he had a debt in the first place, nor that he had anything to pay, but both were totally incapable of doing what God required, which is perfection. Now, it says if we correspond here to this parable that both were forgiven the debt. Makes me wonder, maybe Simon wasn't as antagonistic after all. Maybe Simon was even a believer, certainly at the beginning of the stage. It's an interesting idea. But the woman loved more. Why? Because she knew there was nothing that she could do to be made right before God. And so in her gratitude, gratitude, she loves Jesus more. It turns out that Simon's right answer revealed a wrong attitude. Second point, a broken spirit expresses gratitude. Verse 44, then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, Jesus does not cover it, are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Her love to Jesus was evidenced of her understanding of the forgiveness that only he could give. And then Jesus drops the bomb, but he who is forgiven little loves little. The Pharisee's lack of repentance and contrition, of desperation, of recognition of what he needs, placed in juxtaposition with this woman's genuine repentance, make it all clear. 
Jesus is telling Simon in so many words, check your attitude. Check your attitude. You think that you have it all together, but no. The brokenness that I am calling you to is the very thing that will give you the blessing that I so badly want to give you, but the Pharisee couldn't see it. And often we can't either. We try to work on our own power thinking that we can achieve what it is we need to achieve all the while never just giving up in desperation looking to Christ. Turns out the greater the grace, the greater the gratitude. Number three, a broken spirit will experience freedom. Verse 48, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus declares that this woman's sins are forgiven by faith. She trusted Christ. She found something beyond what she probably was looking for. Maybe she was just looking for acceptance. Maybe she was just looking for healing. Maybe she was just looking for love or to be released from the guilt and shame that goes part and parcel with a life what seems to be on the street, living in some form of sin. But she was desperate. She showed up to Christ in her desperation, in her repentance, and she left with the promise of eternal salvation. She left with so much more than what she likely came to find. And that desperation is what did that, is what worked that in her. Our brokenness before Christ leads to blessings beyond what we expect, both in our initial salvation, but also in our walk with him. We often navigate our lives telling ourselves that we got this. If we got this. But if we're honest, thinking that it's all on us or we have the ability to change things in every respect leads to fatigue, lack of joy, and a self-sufficiency that God says he will not honor with blessing. Talked about the other day, you know, Jesus saying, come to me all the ye who are heavy laden and I will give you rest. For my yoke is light. It's like, are we living, the, does the Christian life feel like lightness? If it's not, we're doing it wrong. We're doing too much in our own strength instead of looking to the one who's done it all for us keeping our eyes on Christ, admitting our desperation and our brokenness, looking to him and watching what he does through our simple obedience. Simple, not easy. So how do we cultivate a broken spirit? Do we just drum it up? Do we just try to... Grovel? There's a passage in the Old Testament that I want us to go through briefly. I think that will give us a really good idea of how it is that we are to cultivate brokenness because it's really not about us. It's about God, okay? It's Isaiah 6. We read it today in the worship, verses 1 through 8. So if you have your Bibles, turn there. Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8. In this passage, we're going to see a four-part move that is something of an ongoing conversation or inner dialogue. We're going to see in one instance with Isaiah what should constantly be occurring within our own life because, frankly, we're quick forgetters. We get it one day, we lost it five minutes later. This is something that we have to make a habit in our life. This is what it means to be walking more and more with the Lord as we're continually looking to him. So it all starts with a vision of the glory of the Lord. 
So when we're trying to find desperation in ourselves, when we're trying to find brokenness in us, it's not to look at us, it's to look at God. We look at the glory of the Lord. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the temple of the Lord sitting upon a throne, lifted up and high, and the train of the robe filled his temple. Above him stood the seraphim, these are angels. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Can you imagine that? Some sort of angelic being got six wings, Two of the wings are across his eyes. The other two wings are across his feet. And with the middle two wings, he's hovering over the, over the, the throne, on each side of the throne. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. As we picture this, as we see this in our mind's eye, we can imagine it. We can see God's supremacy high and lifted up, king above all, commanding servants in his heavenly temple. We see God's holiness, the smoke that fills, that obscures the pure holiness of God in the angelic refrain. Only a couple times is something said three times in the scripture. Holy, holy, holy is the most superlative. Nothing more is holy. There's only one other place that three times is it. It's whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> it's a really bad whoa. We see God's majesty, the hem of his robe, the train of his robe fills the temple. We see Princess Diana, if you recall, when she was married, how long that train was. She got out of the car and it just kept going and going and going and going. It's an indication of majesty. And here Isaiah is seeing the Lord high and lifted up, exalted within the smoke of the temple. The angelic beings on either side and the train fills everything. Ultimate majesty. Did you know in the book of John, in chapter 12, it talks about Isaiah seeing the Lord. When you read this passage and you look at it in, in Isaiah 6, if you say, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, the word that's used for Lord, the Lord of hosts, is the word Yahweh. It's the divine covenantal name of God. It is the proper name of God. In John 12, John says that when we read Isaiah, that Isaiah was looking upon the Lord, and guess who John is saying he's seeing? Jesus. This was one of the passages that was revolutionary for me in my understanding of the Christian faith, of what it meant about who Jesus is. Jesus is God of gods the one who sits high and exalted, the one who in the temple filled with smoke, whose train fills the temple, who angelic beings serve, is Christ. We see Jesus as this meek and mild prophet who, who heals people and loves, and it's true. But he's also this. This is who we look at. This is what we see, the glory of Christ upon the throne. Do you see that? Sometimes we lose it. We walk this world and we leak out what we once knew. 
We need a fresh vision. Isaiah had a vision. What do we do? First is we look to his word. Many of us are not in, his, in God's word enough. We're not really digging in like the little, like there's like hidden stuff in there. There's gems in here. Did you know that? There's treasure in here. You're only going to find it if you look. And it's not always going to be treasure tomorrow what you find today. God has something fresh and new for you in his word that he wants to reveal to you. Get in there. We change things up if we need to. Sometimes I'll look at God's word, I'll read the Bible, I'll do it differently. I might pray through passages. I might look for a theme through all the word. I might look for ways or change the pronouns in a way that says where it's talking about a third person, it's talking about Adam. Ask the Lord for a fresh vision of who he is and his majesty and his glory. Sometimes serving others gives us the ability to see God in his glory. Sometimes we get a fresh vision by writing out our testimony with a view of God's grace, all the ways that God's grace was shown in my life. Or write it in the third person, like you're a reporter, reporting upon your own life. I think, though, one of the biggest ways that I have gotten fresh visions of who Christ is, and the Bible has this refrain as well frequently, is that we worship. We worship. When we show up on Sunday and it's time to gather together as a community and we're singing hymns and we're praying and we're reading scripture, are we going through the motions? Sometimes it feels for me like I'm trying to decompress from the rest of the week and by the time it's, I'm ready to worship, it's time for me to preach. Are we preparing ourselves for what is going to occur together as a family? We wake up in the morning, Lord, I know today that you are going to give me something. I'm coming before you with the outpouring of what I have from the rest of my week. Lord, will you meet me there? Are we asking the Lord to prepare our hearts before we come for something new? Are we even expecting him to say something new? And are we listening for it? So we start with the vision of the glory of the Lord. When we look upon the Lord, this results in the recognition and admission of our sinfulness. Look what Isaiah says. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Yahweh of hosts. Christ, John 12. Isaiah's admission of guilt is that not about, it wasn't just him drumming up guilt. It wasn't him just confessing guilt. That was done in response to seeing God on the throne, the glory and majesty of God's perfection. We spend a lot of time thinking about ourselves and what's going on in our hearts and, this, and that can be good. That is necessary, but it only should be done in relation to a vision of the Lord in seeing God for who he is. I'm a man of unclean lips. What's he saying? Am I, I have a foul mouth? No. The fount of what's in a man's heart is his mouth. He's saying, I'm a man with an unclean heart. And I live amongst the people of an unclean heart. We declare your name in a way. We, we bear your name in a way that's not worthy of who you are. More than just a personal confession of guilt, it's a corporate one as well. He confesses the sin of his people. 
When we see Christ exalted, when we see God in his glory and who he is, it moves us beyond our own confession, however necessary it is. It moves us beyond that we all. It's not, yeah, Lord, I'm a sinner, but they're really sinners, because that's Simon. Okay, I'll admit that I'm probably a sinner, but she's a real sinner. We confess the sin of ourselves, of our family, of our community, of our nation. And that can only be done when we see Christ in his glory. That culminates in the gracious forgiveness of sins. We look upon God's glory, which moves us to admit our guilt, which then culminates in the gracious forgiveness of sin. Verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. All he did was stand there in the face of God's glory, his holiness, his majesty, and said, I am not worthy. God's immediate response was a gracious atonement for that sin. When we come before the Lord today and we come to Jesus, is it Jesus plus something else or is it just Jesus, I'm a sinner? That's it. When we look upon Christ in his glory and we admit our sinfulness, gracious forgiveness comes to us. All we have to do is admit it. Guilt is removed. Our sin is atoned for. In these words here, there's a beautiful picture of Christ's forgiveness that we see back in the Old Testament. That guilt being removed is literally a word that in its most literal form means to change direction. That means the guilt that was coming towards us goes out. The guilt that was upon us goes elsewhere. Our guilt changes directions and our sin atoned for means to to cover. It's the same word that's used in Genesis where they smear pitch over the outside of the ark, so covering the ark with tar, okay? What it's saying here is that my sin has been taken off. The direction of my guilt is being moved and I'm being covered by something else. That's called the righteousness of Christ. Here's Isaiah, 700 years before the death of Jesus being forgiven by the same Christ who would come 700 years later on credit. That's a good God. That's a good God. That's a God who can look forward and say, not yet, but I know, and I'm going to put it on him for you today. That's, God didn't have to do that. God doesn't have to do any of this, yet he loves us and out of his grace calls us to him. In focusing on the grace God has shown us in Christ, we remind ourselves of our own sufficiency and the sufficiency of Christ alone for our salvation. Finally, we see the holiness of God, we, which moves us to admit our guilt, which then culminates in a gracious forgiveness started by God, not by us. It ultimately expresses itself in a response to God's missional calling. And I heard a voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Interesting, us, isn't that? Then I said, here I am, send me. See, this is more than just an initial calling and go to the mission field. Many a missions conference has used this passage. It says, here I am, send me. Boom, we go out, okay? Which is good. 
But this is a calling to be sent to where you are now. You're being sent to, you're being called to express the glory of God that you just saw, to live in the gratitude that culminates from that, and to go to your own family, to go to your own friends, to go to your own people with what you saw. I've seen the glory of the Lord, and I know that I'm a sinner, and in response to that, he forgave me. And he wants to forgive you too. This happens wherever we go. We do this to our partners. We do this to our children, to our neighbors. Maybe we go across across the seas to go someplace else. Our calling as children of God is to be glorifying and demonstrating this in every place that we go. Now, interestingly about this whole process here is you can reverse engineer it, okay? You can ask yourself if the final step is missional calling. It's me talking to my neighbors. It's me living, expressing Christ's character to those around me. If I'm struggling in this area, go to the step before. Do I understand what my forgiveness is? Do I understand the gracious atonement that Christ has given me based on his death? No? Go back another step. Am I admitting What is really going on? Woe is me. Have we all had a woe is me moment? When was my woe is me moment? No, I don't think I have. Am I looking finally at the glory of the Lord? It all starts and stops with the glorious holiness of God that is Christ exalted on the throne. It is to him we look in our day-to-day. It is to him we look when our circumstances seem dire. It is him to look when we don't know what else to do. Instead, we, we seek and we strive to find a way on our own, feeling like orphans when we're not orphans. We're part of God's family. Look to him. Look to him that he might break your spirit and you receive the blessing. So a broken spirit acknowledges its own desperation. A broken spirit expresses gratitude. And a broken spirit, this is a promise, will experience freedom. Keep seeking a vision of the glory of the Lord in Christ. Keep looking to him. See Christ's holiness, his majesty, his grace. Keep your eyes focused there. Let your heart be broken. By what you find, let your heart be broken by the vision that it brings. Receive his gracious provision of salvation. If you're already saved, receive it again. This is a promise every day that he will carry you through. Look to him. Then answer the call and go. Reflect the glory of Christ in your family, in your communities, and everywhere. For he has saved us. He has saved us. We did nothing to deserve it. Christ is good and glorious and exalted. And because he is, we will too be one day. All by grace, all because what he has done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that, you, that it was your good will to call us into your kingdom. We thank you, Jesus, that it was your willingness to die on a cross on our behalf. We deserved nothing, Lord. We pray that you would give us a broken spirit to recognize that, that we would live with gratitude and love and rejoicing and recognition that it's only because of what you've done by your grace that we are here today. Spirit, I pray that you would empower all of us, bring us to mind, bring to mind again and again what Christ has done on our behalf. Lord, help us to love each other well. First and foremost, loving you. 
and seeing you in all of your holiness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Pastor Adam here. Well, I want to thank you for tuning in to Grace Bible Church, and I would love to hear what you thought of today's program or of ways that we can be praying for you and with you. So check us out on social media at GBCL. Also, if you would like to support our ministry, you can give securely at our website at www.gbclm.org. Now remember, God loves you, and so do we.